to say congratulations yeah. uh, to the boss got some big news congratulations to us all i should say uh <laughs> worker collective for... <laughs> exactly. uh well if she books um independent bookshop of the year open parentheses london close parentheses uh... <laughs> <laughs> whispered yeah. whispered exactly yeah exactly <laughs> you'll see you'll, you'll see the hastily printed banner daubed across the front of our of our shop <laughs> um, but yeah it's really brilliant news and um i don't know it's been quite a year isn't it guys so i yeah, think yeah. uh pays testament to everyone's hard work and yeah we'll see whether we win and the the will be entered into a national uh and we'll find out the result of that sometime in the future whose palms do we need to grease to make that happen i believe it's a raffle i think it's a raffle <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lady Luck herself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, um, we're up against some like tough competition. Um five leads in Nottingham, yeah. Mr. B's. It's um mm. some some great bookshops. Some great bookshops. And yeah. uh as someone uh on Twitter pointed out yesterday, and I'm just gonna say it because I'm obsessed with the word pivot, that um <laughs> indies have been more able to pivot uh during this hell year because um of our dedicated teams and because of our communities so because we know what you all listening out there are into an uproar because you tell us and we love that and so we've been able to keep going and for example have a podcast um exactly Angels I, blessing. I, I, I started that, and I was like, I was like, am I going anywhere with that? I don't think I am. Um, <laughs> so, professional broadcasting, right there. That's it. Who do we have on to to, to move things on? No dead air, Sam. No dead air. Well, uh, so one thing that we also started uh, last year in September, uh, uh, which was four thousand months ago, approximately, uh, was our indie fiction subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, and for podcast ease, you have not yet joined uh, the club, check it out on our website or join our newsletter to find out who each month's titles are. And we send you the best of indie presses. Um, and this month really is uh, a, a stunner. Uh, not just the book, Dryland by Sarah Jaffe, which is the queer 90s uh, novel that you didn't know you need, but your heart really does. But also Cypher Press, who are the only people we know who are crazier than us, because their response to the pandemic was to go, what should we do? Let's start a press. <laughs> Let's start a press that's Into specifically related to the queer live lit scene during a pandemic. And they have, and they got Arts Council funding, and they're publishing brilliant books. And they're on the lookout for submissions. So check out the interview with Jen and Ellis on our website where they talk about their favourite reading and what they're hoping to publish. And you could be one of our next indie fiction subscription titles. Cool. Uh, That's not a guarantee, by the way. I should say that (laughs) is not a guarantee. Yeah, if you've got any emails, just direct them to so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so mad. Oh, there's a contractual promise <laughs> in your podcast. Legally binding exactly. podcasts. It's yeah. a new genre. Um, and Sam, what we've got, what's happening? When is the shop reopening for people who want their books in their hands? Well, 12th of April, uh, you know, raring and ready. Uh, we've done it before. We've got everything set up, safe and sound and um, distance. So, yeah, we're really excited to welcome people back into the shop. And we've also got a really incredible amount of secondhand stock um, that we've gathered over the last three months. Um, <laughs> and that has been gathering dust <laughs> that I've been vacuuming around. So, as as, uh, we uh, Clothes uh, for the traditional Easter dusting. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
but it, yeah, it's gonna be uh, it's it's, it's gonna be great. Trust rare me, it's gonna rare be great. With rare books. Cool. All right, shall we pass over to Simon Sarah uh, for the interview? Yeah. Um, get ready for a deep dive uh, into creative writing, and um, I'm just gonna do that bit again, Dan. Sorry. Yeah, get no. ready. Yeah, get ready for a really impassioned deep dive uh, into creative writing. This is a writing class for your ears and a reading uh, list for all time. Uh, in fact, Sarah, um, who is like not only an incredibly cutting edge uh, writer, but also a musician who was uh, in the band Raise Arata, um, her um, picks for the books that she's thinking about with dryland are so avant-garde some of them are not even in print in the uk uh anymore some of them never have been (laughs) exactly like dan Dan was uh totally unavailable (laughs) uh but so we're gonna stick them we'll stick them in the podcast notes anyway the delmore schwartz book that sarah mentions is coming back into print with penguin classics this summer so that's uh that's an amazing pick um yeah but just uh, enjoy. I love this conversation and I hope you will too. Right, do you want to get him out, Sam? Yes. Um, a bit slow. Welcome back. Hi, welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station for the second in our series of podcasts with our indie fiction subscription writers. And I couldn't be more excited to be joined today by Sarah Jaffe, all the way from Portland. I should add, say thank you, Sarah, for taking on the the time difference um, from PST to GNT. (laughs) And Sarah is the author of the brilliant Dryland, which is... A first novel and also the first novel published by our friends Cypher Press. Um, and it's been so exciting reading this book and thinking about it because it's just brought um, everything back for me as someone who was a queer teen uh, in the 90s um, or working out what I, what I was, who I was in the 90s. So many cultural touchstones, familiar and also different. And I think. What's exciting about it, it's a book that anyone who's been a young person or had that process of working out who they are can connect to. So thank you, Sarah, for this brilliant book. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. Can you tell us a bit about what I, what was the impetus to write it? Was it a particular moment when you connected with one of your own memories or you saw other people of another generation going through similar processes or just an image? Um, it was a combination of things. I think some deliberate and some kind of random. Um, the very bizarre like origin story for the actual beginning of the writing of the book was that I was doing a thing to just sort of get myself going on new ideas where I would grab a random book off my shelf like open to a random page, point to a random sentence, and then use that to get me going. And I think the book was Mark Twain's autobiography. (laughs) So a book that literally has nothing to do with what I ended up writing, but there was some kind of sentence about a brother. And somehow um, that brought me to this idea of the missing or distant brother in Dryland. But alongside that, I had been thinking about swimming and my relationship to swimming. And, um, you know, I'm a lifelong swimmer, but I'm really a lifelong mediocre swimmer. And I've never had any interest really in getting any better at it. Um, I was on the swim team for one year, my first year of high school. But beyond that, like, I'm not interested in pushing myself, like any of this stuff, right? So I was thinking about, like, what does it mean to keep doing something without wanting to get better at it. Um, And then sort of thinking about that in terms of failure and the notion of, you know, queer failure um, that Jack Halberstam and others have written about. Um, 
And so those ideas sort of then coalesced with like, you know, obsession with teenagers and coming of age as I think many queers are. Um, and those, so those different points ended up coming together into what was at first um, a long short story. But I just, I kept feeling like the story wasn't able to do all I wanted it to um, for what I actually wanted to express or explore. So from there, it uh, became a novel. Did it ever get published in it in the form of the short story or was that something that you just worked on and, and worked through? Yeah, it didn't. I sent it out once or twice. I don't, I think it wasn't, it didn't work, I don't think. And I think that's because it wasn't, it needed to be a novel, you know? Um, so, uh, but it was really useful for like, in, in certain ways, I think the whole, the whole book was kind of contained in that story. Um, so it was a useful place to start from. Um, it's, I guess it's really interesting that you mention Mark Twain, who <laughs> people who've read Dryland might think, huh? but at, you know, at the same time, Twain is what he's best known for is these stories of, of young people um, mm. having adventures and, you know, in that phrase, learning about themselves, learning about the world, yeah. finding out things are more complex and that they are more complicit in them than perhaps they um, expected, as well as for being, you know, an unreliable narrator of, of his own life. And it just made me think, you know, in a, a tangent, but I think also related, that one thing that I really appreciated so much about Dryland is that Julie, who is the protagonist, um, undertakes a number of adventures or explorations, and she's never punished or threatened. She doesn't face violence. She makes friends with an older uh, male character. Um, so mm -hmm. there are these scenarios uh, where in a mainstream story we would expect violence or violation, you know, the swim team mm -hmm. reputation, the jock reputation. Um, she goes for this walk in Forest Park with this older man. Um, wow. Craig has just dumped us again. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going on. Sorry. Um, wow, in the middle of my really emotional piece there. Yeah, um, oh my gosh. <laughs> which I, I really, I genuinely mean wholeheartedly. Um, it still says that it's recording on my screen. Oh. Mm, I am. Oh. So hopefully it recorded your part. Mm. Uh, and he says he's still recording. Okay. Um, Dan, I hope this is recording. I have no way of telling, but hopefully you can piece these two together. So I'll just revisit uh, what I was saying there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was excited about where that was going. Yeah, <laughs> Dan, I'll go from the bit where I said Twain is best known for writing these stories of adventure, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the things that I really loved about this book is that on her own terms, Julie, who's the protagonist, does um, have adventures. And we might think, you know, they're within the city of Portland and they're within school and her family. But there, there are these scenarios which are, you know, really familiar if you're a consumer of teen media, that are scenarios of often threat and punishment and containment, particularly for female characters and queer characters, you know, hanging out with the swim team, with, with jocks, there's, you know, a really um, violent reputation around that. Or Julie makes mm -hmm. friends with an older male character who she meets in a magazine store and they go for a hike together. So these scenarios, which almost always presented to us as scenarios of violence and punishment for exceeding your boundaries and the book just is having none of that and um so twain made me just 
want to ask you to reflect on that. Like, what does it mean to have an adventure as someone who doesn't fit normative dominant embodiment? How can we have mm-hmm. that? Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and one thing it makes me think about is um, a writer friend read an early draft of the novel and her feedback was like, it's, I don't remember exactly the words she used, but something like, you know, there's not enough danger, it's too safe. Um, and I'm very, in, in a way, it's something I'm self-conscious about because um, I, do, I do recognize that even though some of the types of, you know, violence or risk you describe become tropes or cliches or they become exploitative, they are also a reality of lived experience for many people. Um, but I, you know, Julie is not me. This is not an autobiographical novel, but to the extent that I brought my own experience of being a young person to it, um, I did a lot of things that I think looked at from the outside would have been considered risky. Um, and I felt no sense of risk, not because I felt invincible, but because I think I felt invisible and actually completely disembodied um, because in in ways that I think had a lot to do with queerness and a a sense of not being at home in my own body. So for example, you know, I made a friend with some random, made friends with some random older dude who worked at a record store and would like go hang out with him and go to shows with him. And I'm sure my parents were probably freaking out but in my mind, I was like, there's nothing weird about that. Like, you know, there's no vibe. Like, it's it's fine. I'm just like, we're just gonna listen to music together. Like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't put myself in the position of someone who would be at risk, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like, maybe it's, maybe it's a form of dissociation or something like that, but it, it's, it like gets mixed, all mixed up with like, um, Sorry, are you there? I'm here, yeah. Oh, my, yeah, sorry, my screen went to sleep, I got it. Anyway, um, uh, I'm gonna start that sentence over. So I think um, it may be sort of a form of dissociation. I also think, you know, it gets mixed up with certain kinds of privilege, you know, like as a white person, as a female-bodied person who, maybe presents somewhat ambiguously gender-wise, like there are both, there are privileges that accrue to me that might make me feel less at risk, um, but also you have to, you have to know that you have a body in order to feel bodily vulnerable. Um, And I think that I wanted to write Julie in a similar way. Um, She wouldn't feel like it was risky to, go on a walk in the woods with Ben because she wouldn't see herself as someone who would be at risk in a situation like that. I'm just reflecting on that and the power of that phrase is not feeling invincible, but invisible. And the, the beautiful work that this book does to balance Julie's self-protection with her becoming visible to herself, if that makes sense, or becoming sort of tangible to herself. Some of my favorite passages in the book are about how she chooses her clothes. Um, mm. the, I mean, there's the excruciating passage where she goes and buys the swimsuit, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, those of us who don't conform to swimsuit manufacturers' ideals of how we should appear will all... Um, experience with her and finding the swimsuit which does give her a sense a tangible sense of herself um and also her experience of music this incredible physicality and sensuality with which you write about Julie's experience of listening to music and these sort of tingles of send the sensation of herself that she has and um you're a musician and a writer and I wonder if you could talk a bit about writing music writing that experience Mm. of being inside music um because Mm. 
it definitely gave me tingles. Of right, so of writing about not uh, not of writing music, but of like yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. of writing music, of, of writing. writing in the novel about. I don't uh-huh. want to say like the experience of listening to music or lyrics because it's much yeah, more yeah. than that. It's about yeah the writing about what music does with you and mm-hmm. you do with the music. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, those were some of my favorite passages to write, um, and. I think that, you know, to to sort of veer off for for a moment, but come back to it, like um, early on, you know, there there may have been like an early iteration of Julie where she um, was a little bit more, let's say, like advanced in her musical tastes. Like maybe she had already discovered, you know, more sort of underground music. Um, but I ultimately felt like it would be much more interesting to write about her experience with music that didn't so much have the the social or cultural um, aspects in the mix. I mean, that's that's also always there. Um, But in my experience, at least, once you sort of are really finding your niche, it becomes like the context can almost like overtake. Um, the experience of the music itself, and it seemed much more interesting to me to write about those moments where what you're consuming is something that's very broadly popular, but your experience of it feels so individual. Mm. Um, and and you know, like where you have a sense that you want something beyond the radio hits but you don't really know how to access them. So you turn to REM, who seems like the most mysterious um, of the widely available offerings. And from your, you know, cassette copy of Out of Time, you turn to Country Feedback, which is a more obscure song on that tape. It's like you're burrowing in, trying to find something more and more specific. without yet having the tools to get to exactly the thing that you're gonna feel like is representing you. Um, And I really, I was thinking about that sensation of like, what are the parts you don't quite understand? What are the parts that um, make you feel a feeling that you don't have words for? Um, What are the parts that make you embarrassed for some reason that you don't understand, you know, whatever it might be, like the headiness of those feelings, um, that sense of their specificity at the same time as you can't articulate why they're making you feel the way they are. And when you're writing, Mm -hmm. and I know that you... Uh, you teach writing as well. How do you reach for those words, for the things mm-hmm. that there aren't words for? Yeah. Um, because I was really struck by a number of places in Dryland where there's descriptions of almost micro movements or neurological sensations, like it's that close to the mm. character's bodily perceptions, like the sensation of carpets, um, the description of the kiss. And so are there writing practices or mental spaces or even things in your physical space that help you get into writing those things that there are word for and particularly when you're coming up against experiences of embarrassment or shame and I Mm -hmm. you know this for me this book book is fully a vote for the fact that we are dorks you know (laughs) all all those media representations of like cooler than cool teenagers with their snappy quips and this book is definitely, you know, and I'm fully team dork. So how do you mm-hmm. go into that space and deal with those, whether they're your feelings or stories you've heard from others or things you've seen people around your experience and, and then find those words? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I think there's probably some, you know, some things that happen in the moment that I don't even quite know or understand that bring all that together. But I think if I were, was going to think about it in relation to teaching and and how I would talk about it, um, 
I think a lot about the idea of the image and then the idea that how we can like express character is through bringing particularity and specificity to how they see and experience the world. Um, and, you know, this goes beyond the like, objective correlative, like project the feelings of the story into an object in the room. Um, but that, you know, the way Julie feels the carpet is not only gonna tell us something about the carpet, it's gonna tell us something important about Julie. Um, and it's gonna tell us something about how she's feeling in a particular moment. So, um, you know, we hear the like um, first thought, best thought idea sometimes. I think when in writing, usually first thought is like the received thought or the easy thought. Um, so, you know, one strategy is always to push beyond that, to ask myself, is this image, is this language coming in because it seems like what would come in here or because it's something that feels really true to the character and true to the moment. Um, and it's not, um, you know, it, it might sound like second guessing, but it's, it's not that it's like mining deeper to get, um, to get to that authentic feeling moment. Um, and, um, and then I also think like, I don't know, I, like I think a lot about this idea of not knowing and of the things that are illegible to us yet have an effect on us. Um, and I want, as a writer, I wanna, create a sense of precision in my writing, but I'm not interested in writing a character who can describe something with 100% accuracy. I'm much more interested in the idea of writing a character who gets things wrong, wrong as much as she gets them right. I love that um, because as we sort of know ourselves as humans and we don't we we don't go around describing things with a hundred percent accuracy i say falling over my attempt to say a sense simple <laughs> <sentence. laughs> um i'm also really aware sarah that i'm asking you about a book that is uh was published in the us it was it was five years ago is that right mm -hmm. it is um, yeah which is you know several lifetimes uh, at this point, given everything that's happened in the last five years, um, mm -hmm. and I want to ask you uh, about how the book came to the UK and how it came to Cypher. But I first wanted to ask about, you know, with musicians, people talk about the, the difficult second album. So I'm wondering about what came out of that process of uh, writing dry land that is coming into the projects that you're working on at the moment is it every time you face the blank page you, do you have to start from scratch or are there muscles that, that got built that you can you can flex in these new projects or is it a case of unlearning what what happens in that process between projects mm -hmm. um i think that you know very much in line with um, what I was just talking about in terms of the image, in terms of not knowing, like these are aspects of my writing that I think I really honed um, in the writing of Dryland that continue to feel really important to me and that I continue to bring to my other work. Um, sometimes even though I'm working on a collection of short stories and even though the stories are very different in nearly every way from Dryland. Um, I sometimes fear that I'm <laughs> like I'm just writing Julie over and over again um, in certain ways because of bringing in those strategies. Um, but um, 
but you know, it's also, it's interesting to think about like the experience of writing a novel and its immersiveness versus writing short stories. Um, I decided that my next project was gonna be a collection because I already had a few stories and wanted to build it out and had this weird idea that it like would be easier than writing a novel <laughs> next. Um, but it turns out that when you're writing a collection of stories, you actually have to just like confront the beginning again and again and again and again, like all the time um, and go through that whole revision process and everything again and again and again. So um, word to the wise, uh, no easier to write a collection of stories than a novel. Not that I'm out there looking for easy things, but um, anyway, so um, yeah, so that, those are things that I think came from the writing of the novel. Um, and I don't, I mean, you know, I've been, I just, I picked up um, a copy of the beautiful cipher version of Dryland this morning and turned to random pages and, there are definitely parts of this novel that I had completely forgotten about. Um, you know, I haven't looked back at it in years. And, um, and I think I stand by it and that's a pretty good feeling, you know, like I don't, yeah. um, I was sort of prepared to cringe um, as we sometimes do with older work. And, um, and, I, and I feel that I, you know, did what I set out to do with the novel and, um, and take pride in it. So um, that, that was a good feeling. So has it been quite strange receiving this second wave of responses and acclamation coming from a small gray island, um, <laughs> eight, eight hours and 5,000 miles uh, away with its, you know, weird transphobia and racism and, <laughs> Do we deserve dry land? That's the first question. Oh my gosh. See, um, okay, 100%. And we could talk about all the things, you know, that I I think we have, we, I don't think we need to <laughs> compare the depravity of our respective countries. So the the feedback that I'm getting about the, the UK dry land um, feels of a, of a piece with my writing as a whole. It's not as if, um, you know, I made a, country album five, five years ago and now I'm only focused on hip hop or something. It, it is really part of the same continuum. Um, but also, I th and I think this, this speaks to my relationship with Cypher and my excitement about having this book come out with Cypher. Like I really feel like this book is getting to the right readers um, thus far in the UK. Um, the ways in which, you know, from the response I've seen so far, the ways in which people are talking about the book is exactly like how I would have dreamed that people would talk about this book. Um, and I think that has to do with it coming from a queer press. I think that has to do with like who, you know, the gorgeous cover, which is like completely my dream cover. Um, you know, I, I was, was happy with my experience with Tin House in the U.S., but it, um, Tin House is, much, is a much broader, um, has a much broader orientation. And um, I think, like, my experience with Cypher confirms my belief that, like, <laughs> I was going to say something else, but actually what I really want to say is it, like, confirms my belief that queers are the best. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> um, we could, that, yeah, I mean, all the t-shirts um, should say that. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Wolf uh, for the gorgeous uh, cover design, which looks like it has been um, roller painted. Uh, on a pool, on wallpaper, it looks like your punk show poster. Um, it just brings that all together so fantastically. And I think that's part of why we're so excited and trying to support new presses right now, presses that are starting with small teams that are committed to a particular 
um, the particularity of community rather than a particular community, because that sounds very exclusionary, but to publishing with the community that they're part of and constantly enlarging that community and publishing books uh, and pamphlets that reflect that ethos uh, as well, that it seems, you know, I remember, I think it's in Whit Stillman's film, Barcelona, I think, there's a character who says to another, you know, books will never be plagiarized because it's so much work to photocopy a book. I mean, that tells you so much about where that film was made, like before Google Books. But there's still, you know, this sense that the, you know, the beautiful physical object of a book that I can hold and that I can, you know, when I can see friends, lend to friends, you know, mine, not this copy because it's covered in post-it notes and scrolls, obviously, and band logos. Um, I'm, ne- I'm never letting go of, but another copy. Um, so something about that physicality, uh, and you. this brings us back to the beginning, in a sense, and your writing practice, your generative constraint of opening the books on your shelves, your shelves or shelf, maybe only one, and um, too many shelves, uh, the piles, and reading a line in them. And we have a new feature uh, on the podcast, which we have blatantly stolen from Desert Island Discs, which is a British radio show uh, called Desert Island Books, um, where we ask you about five books that have traveled with you or been touchstones uh, for you alongside dry land or that you think about in relation to dry land, whether writing it or before you could even have imagined writing it or during the, the journey of the book over the last five years, like who, who would be its travel companion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I um, was literally up last night thinking about this. I think I even had an anxiety dream about it oh, because no. there were so many books to choose. <laughs> and I thought, how am I gonna narrow it down? Um, but I, I, I think I can do it. Um, I have a little pile in front of me so that I can commit to these books that are actually in front of me. Um, and um, I thought I'd share um, a few books that um, that I would say influenced the writing of Dryland. Am I thinking about it? And then a few books that I've encountered since the writing of it that I feel like continue that conversation or, or are on a continuum um, continuum with it. Um, so the first one um, is, is uh, what one was it? I'm going to look up the. So um, it's a short novel by the British writer Denton Welch um, called In Youth is Pleasure, which was published in 1945. Um, And uh, should I just speak a little bit about each book? Yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, So are you you familiar with Denton Welch? Um, I'm familiar with the writer, but not with that book. Um, So he, um, he was, queer, he was a visual artist, um, but got in a terrible bicycle accident in his early 20s, um, which um, made it so that he couldn't, he couldn't do visual art anymore. So he then turned to writing um, and very tragically died like 10 years later um, due to complications from that, the accident. Um, but he, this novel as, as well as his others, um, I think might get called autofiction today. They're, they're quite autobiographical. Um, and this one is about this young boy named Orville who, while not explicitly queer, um, does many what we might consider um, queer things throughout the book. He's on holiday with his family at this hotel in the countryside. Um, he, uh, you know, does things like um, find a weird old like strap attached to a cello and beat himself with it or like ogle this scoutmaster man in a canoe. Um, and <laughs> so pretty queer feeling. Um, uh, but um, what I love about this book, first of all, is it's, it's sort of, uh, there are things that, that Orville, the character does that we might read as abject or disgusting or whatever it might be, but he embraces them with such pleasure. Um, and that feels very queer to me, you know, in sort of like a John Waters kind of way. Um, 
you know, he's eating at one point this uh, spinach and it reminds, the color of the spinach reminds him of this time that he stepped on a cow pat and green grass shone through. So as he's eating the spinach, he's thinking, I'm eating cow pat, I'm eating cow pat, but that's like delightful to him, right? Um, and he's just like this like 13 year old, you know, fancy boy at a hotel with his dad or whatever. Um, uh, so I, I love this idea of, um, a young person with like an aesthetic um, and a queer aesthetic. And also um, that perhaps it's a coming of age novel because it's about a young person, but he doesn't learn a lesson. He doesn't need to. Um, and in general, I'm much more interested in that kind of coming of age novel than in the conventional buildings Roman. Um, so that's In Youth is Pleasure. Um, so the next one in my little stack here, um, is by Lynn Tillman, who um, is one of my absolute favorites, um, fiction writer and critic, Lynn Tillman. Um, and this is her novel, Haunted Houses, um, which came out in 1987. And this is another example of what I might term an anti-coming of age novel. Um, it tells the story of these three, um, well, at the beginning, girls who grow up throughout the course of the novel. Um, these stories remain separate throughout. The, they each get their own chapters. Their narratives never explicitly cross. Um, but um, again, we watch them making mistakes and not learning from them. Um, we watch them um, creating their own sort of sense of causality in the world. Um, we watch their... Um, I want to say like their consciousness driving um, the way that plot is represented. Um, for example, there's this, this scene that I thought about and actually written about a little bit where um, one of the characters is sexually assaulted. And the, but the assault itself is embedded in this long paragraph that begins and ends with her listening to the radio. And it's really interesting to me to think about like, how in a more conventional narrative, we would have had to put the assault front and center and she would have had to be responding a particular way. But in that moment, this character, in order to live through it, needs to focus on what's playing on the radio. Um, and I just think it's so interesting. Um, we have, there are so many received ideas about cause and effect and whether it's related to, to trauma or, or just sort of like simple mundane activities. And I'm always interested in a novel, particularly a novel um, about young people, about growing up, um, where those presumed hierarchies are, are disrupted in some way. I um, think that that, yeah. that description of the characters creating their own sense of causality in the world, that is something I really feel with Julie as well, mm. that that's, she's kind of becoming a center of gravity in her mm. own narration, in her own relation to the world. Um, mm. That's a really great description of it. Thank you. Um, that is meaningful to me to hear. Um, so um, the next book, um, it's funny actually, like all of these books are a little bit older, which I hadn't thought about. Um, in general, I feel like most of the books I read are very contemporary, but um, this next book is Gwendolyn, book, Gwendolyn Brooks' 1953 novel, Maud Martha. Um, and another novel that is um, described as, as a coming of age novel. Um, excuse me. Um, and I believe this was the only novel, novel for adults um, that Brooks wrote. Um, and, you know, of course, um, her, her poet's voice comes through throughout. And um, one thing that, that this novel really makes me think of, it's written, it's very image-based, it's written very impressionistically in these short chapters at different points in this character, Maud Martha's life. And um, when I was in graduate school getting my MFA, um, my professor, Noe Holland um, says something to the effect of when we're writing, when we're writing young characters, it's more important that we capture 
the quality of observation of a young person as opposed to using the exact language that a young person would use. If we're writing um, for an adult audience, right? Like it's not about necessarily, you don't need to avoid using like a big word that a 10 year old wouldn't use. The idea is to use the language that you have at hand to try to get at what it feels like to experience the world as a 10 year old. Um, and I really feel like that happens in Maud Martha. Um, there's this uh, beautiful, beautiful part at the beginning about um, her looking at dandelions and how she loved them because they were every day as opposed to their being pretty. And just thinking about a child having that, that thought and that experience was really beautiful and moving to me. It gives me a really physical, visceral sense of that moment in the summer when dandelions become dandelion clocks as well, mm -hmm. something, a, a very particular memory. So I, I have read Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry, but I've never read Maud Martha and I'm definitely, that is now definitely on my list to, to seek out. We'll yeah, see I think if it's, it's in print in the UK, which does yeah. very badly with black writers. So. Yeah, it's not, um, I only, I think I, I think I read it because my partner, um, was assigned it in an African-American lit class in, in graduate school. And I hadn't encountered or heard of it before either, but very beautiful. Thank you. Um, okay, so now um, then these last two books are um, books that I've read more recently in the last year, but that I would sort of place on this, on this um, continuum of anti-coming of age literature or coming of age literature that, that defies our expectations around um, what that would look like. Um, and this book is a novel called A Bang by Michelle Cliff, um, who was a Jamaican writer who also um, lived in the United States for much of her life. I'm not sure she identifies as Jamaican American or Jamaican, um, but um, she also, do you, know, do you know Michelle Cliff? No, new name to me. This is part of the transatlantic gap. Uh, yeah. I think that particularly comes up around writers from marginalized communities. <laughs> you know, we've yeah. all heard of Philip Roth, but um, <laughs> the good stuff doesn't, yeah. this is why part of what Cypher's doing with publishing your book and Jess Arndt's book and Brontes Pennell's work is addressing some of that, starting to address some of that mm -hmm. gap. So A Bang by Michelle Cliff. Yeah, and um, and she's someone that I that I only encountered recently. I think a, a writer um, that I admire was talking about her on Instagram or something, and so I followed this up. Um, she was also um, Adrian Rich's longtime partner. Interesting fact, right? Yes. Um, but this this novel um was really incredible to me because it simultaneously tells the story of this this one girl, this one young girl, but also really tells the story of the history of Jamaica. Um, but not in a way that the girl's experience becomes um, a metaphor for that history or um, a, a container for or a projection for that history. Um, but it shows the way that her moving through her, her present moment um, necessarily incorporates every aspect of history in Jamaica up to that point. Mm. Um, you know, it also has these narrative passages where it's talking about the Maroons and it's talking about um, different revolts and these kinds of things. So it has some sort of straight up historical narrative, but in the pat and in the passages um, about Claire, the main character, uh, we feel the presence of that history in a really evocative way. And that's really interesting to me to think about um, is is how does history live in our writing? How does the political live in our writing? Um, and I just think this that's done in this book in such a beautiful way. Another um, one for the top of the for the top of the pile, um, and it it makes me reflect that I had heard Michelle of Michelle Cliff in relation to Adrienne Rich, um, <laughs> you know, in, in discussion and in books, but I don't know how much of her writing has ever been published here and that's an investigation that I'm now gonna go on and, and undertake and um so I'm like I'm super excited for the fifth book, the pinnacle 
is going to be to add to my pile. (laughs) You know, this, I'm sorry, I'm disrupting the trajectory here, but this edition actually is from Obelisk, who I think, are they a UK based publisher? Possibly they were. Maybe. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Anyway, um, so I'm taking my hat. Um, okay, so fifth book, actually, this one is actually so new, I don't even know if it's out yet, although it's out every, any day, um, and it's a collection of stories called Sarah Land um, by the Los Angeles-based writer Sam Cohen, and um, I just read this book, like, last week, um, I pretty much couldn't put it down, and um, it's this series of short stories all featuring um a character named Sarah with an H, so quite different from my name, um, who may or may not be the same Sarah in the different stories. Um, But um, it's super queer. It's super like pushing into shame and discomfort, but also joy. And most striking to me are the stories where there's a character that's moving towards queerness in some way, but not yet defining herself around it. Mm. And um, uh, again, this question of like, or this idea of like alleged or the unknown or like what's illegible to oneself, even as one is moving towards it. Um, So, and then there's like all this great stuff about like pop culture and fan fiction. And it's, it's really, it's really terrific. Um, Sarah Land by Sam Cohen. And that is uh, just being published in the UK next month. In oh, April sweet. By Hachette. So um, pre, we will put that on our um, April pre-orders list. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, its cover is pink and green. so putting it next to the dry line cover will produce an extremely mm-hmm. punk hot. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm Excellent. doing it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I love the kind of constellation of these books around, uh, as you say, reimagining or unimagining or unlearning the buildings Roman and the idea of, of pointedness or coherence that they all express selves that are finding their own multiplicities or moving outside the trajectory of becoming adult or becoming normative that is um, so often the case or, you know, discovering the thing you're supposed to discover that is the secret of adulthood. But in some ways, retaining this great joy of being in the time of of learning and the time of tasting. Mm -hmm. I love that um, Mm -hmm. description of, of eating the you know, obviously quite badly cooked spinach and finding a way to, <laughs> to revel in that experience of when you're a young person yeah. and you get to choose what you're eating. So you you translate it into this sensory experience. Um, and yeah, that that's one of the things that I really got from Dryland as well. As you, you, you said early on in, the, in our conversation that there's this kind of obsession with youth culture and teenagers um in mm. in modern contemporary euro western culture but i feel like it's often very disrespectful or exploitative of young people as having agency autonomy interiority um while not necessarily wanting to express those in ways that are like decisive or you know mm. productive quote unquote so that's one of the things i loved about dryland as well is just it was this space absolutely the space of becoming and savoring um that felt like it had a lot of respect for that experience of being mm-hmm. a young person particularly a young queer or queer becoming person so thank you um i think especially as i spent most of the last year in my bedroom <laughs> reflecting a lot on previous times that i had spent you know locked in my bedroom not allowed to go out you know being grounded for a year has produced a lot of reflections on certain parts mm. Um, and I'm really excited to not only um, read these five uh, five books by Denton Welsh, uh, Lynn Tillman, Gwendolyn Brooks, Michelle Cliff, and Sam Cohen, but also your collection of short stories. 
or individual stories as they <laughs> are you keeping Thank them all you. together? Working, or... on, working on it. Yeah, are they all um, are they yeah, on a kind I... of sending out rotation? Yeah, some of them have already been published, um, and then I have a handful um, that I that I have sort of ready to send out when the time is right. Um, the other thing I have that I haven't mentioned is that um, I'm the parent of a now six year old, so he was born just six months before uh, Dryland came out in the U.S. So, I'm trying to give myself some um, some slack for being a really slow wow. writer these days, because that <laughs> is thought... a that is a pretty big thing that's happened uh, since the yeah. since the U.S. publication. We we love and support writers of all speeds, and we particularly <laughs> um, give a shout out to writers who are parents and carers, and especially over the last year. Um, you know, I may have been locked in my bedroom, but you have been caring <laughs> and homeschooling. And um, thank you so much for taking. I know you only have a sliver of time as a parent who's also uh, working and a, a creative person. So thank you so much for giving it to us and I look forward to at a distance at your experience of, of receiving all the garlands and heart eye emojis and you know hopefully tribute in song uh, that we know <laughs> that Dryland is is going to be getting from our readers and, and from everywhere in the UK that Cypher is reaching so thank you so much um, Sarah and um, good luck. I, it, uh, schools, is there discussion about schools going back in Oregon or is that still? Yeah, they're going, um, so um, they're they're going back a little bit right now. Um, right. They're, uh, my kid has some like in-person instruction um, for like two hours a day now um, and, th and combined with online um, and there'll be more starting at the beginning of April. So, and it's all outdoors, so we feel okay about it. They got some some tents, some industrial <laughs> tents to, to do some all weather outdoor schooling. So I mean, did it's it working out. Uh, presumably, the the snow bomb, the West Coast snow bomb, is now over outside schooling. Oh yeah, day. it destroyed all the tents. It did destroy all the tents, but um, they're fixed now. <laughs> so it's been a mess. Oh wow! Even even more respect for that. Um, thank you so much. And um, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much to Sarah and to So for that really fascinating interview. Um, I do have to apologise for any kind of uh, sense of disjointedness that listeners might have been aware of. We did have a couple of technical hitches, you might say. Uh, we we record using this 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 bot called Craig, who normally is very dependable, and uh, he, he's he's a generally he's a generally well liked chap around the around the place. <laughs> but I did I did forget to mention him in uh, in in the bookshop of the year. Uh, award despatch and he seems to have taken it to heart so, uh yeah he's been a little bit unreliable recently and uh yeah he's thrown his toys out the pram so craig you can take this as my formal apology <laughs> behind us. um so, yeah. speaking speaking of dispatches uh we have a new item on the podcast which we should mention which is uh the biscuit dispatches where we want to give a shout out to double day uh, publishers for sending us some delicious biscuits uh, yeah. as which I don't think is the main prize for being bookshop of the year brackets London black, brackets regional but certainly <laughs> is the tastiest prize we've had so far so if you would like to be mentioned yes. in biscuit dispatches very simple dispatch some biscuits to Birdie Fisher Books um, or yeah. to me because I'm working from home and we will give you a shout out on our podcast and social channels so hot hashtag hashtag nibbles for nibbies, hashtag nibbles <laughs> for nibbies it is the a hot new item on our podcast to go with desert <laughs> island books and yeah i can't wait to um delve into those titles sarah's sarah recommended um if you've read dryland read it again follow it up with the spotify playlist yeah, um yes. join our indie fiction subscription for more such exclusive ephemera and biscuits yeah. we will send mm -hmm. you biscuits Yes. Uh, also not contractual. Asterix, asterix <laughs> you will send us biscuits. <laughs> and, uh, I will I will say that I did eat so many that I felt sick, but I won't hold that against Doubleday. Um, I'm big enough that I can take responsibility. 
responsibility for that. I can't say the word responsibility. I don't know what I'm <laughs> kind of something's going on there. Uh, yeah, but thanks again for joining us. Um, and next month we will have another podcast, uh, which is <laughs> remain to remain to be seen what that will be. Yeah, but, um, happy Passover, happy Easter. We will be closed the first to the fifth. Uh, of April for the aforementioned traditional uh, spring cleaning and uh, we'll see you back at the shop what's the date? on the 12th 12th of April can't wait to see you guys peace bye bye bye